The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone, and a big welcome to anybody who came for the first time. Of course, we all know it's not always so easy to walk into a new space, so I want to just acknowledge that, appreciate that, and um, please know that we here at Common Ground, we're doing our best to become a welcoming community. We realize it's a work in progress. So please let us know how we can do our job better for, I guess, since 1993. So it's been a long time now, over 25 years. Common Ground has operated in a really simple way. First at another building a little bit east of here, um, and now here since 2009 in this building. And we, the community, own this building. We, It's a greasy Family Diner, some of you who've been in the neighborhood a long time probably remember the pink Family Diner with the Hamburger Man, the neon sign on the building when we bought it. And uh, so we renovated the building ourselves and built this beautiful center. And then we just recently finished renovating a beautiful retreat space. It was actually a a little furniture uh, factory by an Amish family in western Wisconsin that we bought maybe five years ago now. We just finished renovating that. So now that's open. If you get the weekly email, you'll read about times to get out there in March to do a practice period. They always go Thursday night, Thursday evening until Sunday, 12 noon. And it's just a small, we have 10 bedrooms or so. So it's just a small group of community members with a couple practice leaders, um, sort of family style, cooking, taking turns cooking for each other, all organized, of course, but it's really simple. Only three sits a day, so there's time for walking and study, all in what we call noble silence, so you're not chatting away with your other folks that are on the retreat with you. But anyway, you can read more on our website about, we call it, for short, Prairie Farm, but it's Common Ground Retreat Center at Prairie Farm. That's the town in western Wisconsin it's close to. But around the center, people just refer to the place as Prairie Farm. Yeah, so there's a lot we've accomplished as a community. And as you probably noticed, those who have been around know, we don't charge for anything. And it's not a trick (laughs) or even a clever fundraising ploy. It's this uh, ancient tradition, especially in the Theravada Buddhist countries like Sri Lanka and Burma and Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, <coughs> that the monasteries and the nuns and the monks have offered the teachings always freely. So even as a lay center here in the West, we decided to follow that same spirit, and it, and it works pretty well these last 26 years. And the one thing to ask is everybody, everyone in their own unique situation in life, have a relationship with the center, especially once you've been around for a while, And you'll figure out how to receive whatever you take advantage of, any classes or whatever you do here, how to receive that as a free gift. Really let it in as a free gift. Of course, it happens because other people have supported the place. 
And then whatever you give back by volunteering or having your sincere good wishes for the center or offering money, let that be offered freely as a free gift because it makes you feel good to give it. And in that way, it really protects the community. And we don't have like super wealthy patrons. It's just all of us, you know, doing what, you know, having a relationship that actually seems to make sense. And if it doesn't make sense, change it. You know, if you're giving too much and it feels a little like not healthy, well, don't give so much. Or if you're holding back for some reason, thinking, finally found the least expensive Buddhist meditation center in town. And you have that kind of attitude and then you realize that doesn't feel very good. Then change it. Have a different attitude until you find something that makes you happy. And I encourage you to have to kind of bring this attitude. It's really a deeper understanding of what generosity is. Generosity doesn't just mean give. It mean it really is pointing to uh, an actual joy we can have when our relationship with another human being or a community, an organization, whatever, could even be your work site. But when your relationship isn't stingy. So it's like open-hearted, open-handed. I'm really showing up 100%, receiving whatever I get in this relationship, giving whatever I have to give in this relationship. Of course, keeping in mind everything else in our lives, all our other responsibilities. So it's always in the context of the totality of our lives, what we have going on. But those are the kind of relationships we want to have everywhere, not just between you and Common Ground, but really everywhere in our life. Even where there's an actual contract, like if at work, you know, you do this, you get that. But even that relationship can be a generous relationship. And you can really receive the paycheck that comes once a month as, oh, wow, look at that. They're actually paying me. And then when you, you know, show up and do your work, you know, just that joy of not holding back and offering what you have to offer. And just see what it does with your, you know, partners and your work scenes and all the places you have relationships. And, of course, just the pragmatics you can uh, look online and there's a sheet of paper next to the donation bowls that explain a little bit more. And just see me if you have any questions. And Gail Iverson, um, our bookkeeper and a longtime teacher here, she works on Tuesday mornings and Thursday mornings in the office. So you can contact her if you have any questions about um, specifics about how to support the center. So we've been looking at why speech, and this will be the last week. We'll move on next week to look at what's called wise livelihood. And this is the section you know, for these months, winter and spring months. We're looking at the Buddhist teachings on path. And what gets us on a spiritual path, at least from a Buddhist perspective, is we discover someday in our life, you know what? It actually matters how I'm living or how I'm relating. Because this one, at least, expression of ignorance is thinking who I am, how I think, what I say, what I do, doesn't matter. So that way we just do whatever we're inclined to do, whatever the habits we have tell us to do, or whatever you know we think will get us what we want. We can justify pretty much anything. Until at some point, 
because we've become sensitive and we've paid attention not only to our own actions and what that sets in motion, but we pay attention to everybody else and what they do and what that sets in motion. And it dawns in the mind slowly, but eventually becomes quite clear, you know what? It actually matters. How I'm thinking, what I'm saying, what I'm doing leaves an impression. It's like planting a seed. There are implications. This is what the Buddha means, or in this tradition, you know, when you hear that word karma, that is often misused here in the West, because right? karma, the word karma means action, any action of thought, word, speaking, or deed, any action done with intention. And when I intentionally say something or do something and even think something, then that intentional action leaves an impression in my heart. And then in the next moment, I'm the person who did that intentional thing and laid that down, that impression down in my heart. So now, who I am, the kind of words, the kind of thoughts, the kind of actions, they're being born out of those cumulative impressions that were laid down previously. That's the understanding of karma. And so it really, that perspective that, I mean, I consider it not a perspective, but the way that it is, it takes enough sensitivity to realize I'm quite literally creating my future now by how I'm relating to the present moment. Because how I'm relating now is leaving an impression on the mind stream. So I'll be the person who related to the present moment like this. That's who I'm going to be in the future. So I, if I'm relating with a lot of anger or a lot of distractedness, a lot of greed, or if I'm relating with a lot of kindness, a lot of perspective, kind of big picture, well then that's setting in motion something that will express itself going forward. So when we realize that it matters, right? it, it inspires this concern and this remorse, right? Because we start, that sets up this discernment of what's helpful and what's not helpful, what's skillful and what's not skillful. And it's not because someone told us, oh, that's bad, you're being bad, or you're being good, but that moral discernment of what's skillful and unskillful, we just feel, basically, by observing ourselves and others and what that sets in motion. Oh, yeah. Things are getting, this heart literally is getting heavy. You know, just like, an, you know, obvious example. You're not looking, I take your meditation shawl, you know, put it in my backpack. But now I'm afraid of getting caught, right? So that state of being concerned about being caught, that's who I am now. I'm the one who doesn't want to be caught stealing something. So I've just taken birth now in that way. Or if I say something mean-spirited to my spouse, you know, and then there's that something, you know, and I'm aware then later or maybe even at the time, oh, should have said that, that was mean, right? Then I have to live with that impression. And if I do a really good job making amends, then that leaves a different kind of impression on the heart. 
So once we realize that it matters, we start to pay attention, and then the mind, over time, we discern, like, oh, this is skillful, this isn't skillful. This leaves the heart feeling light, joyful, easeful. These ways of being, these ways of relating, leave, lead the heart being heavy and dark in the sense of clouded or not seeing clearly. That's how we find our way. We pay attention about what's skillful and unskillful. And so last week, if you weren't here, I talked about how we want to, you know, when we have some wisdom about what's skillful and unskillful, then in moments we'll want to refrain from acting out. Like we might have a strong trigger. You might trigger me and I might want to punch you or, you know, say something with my words that cause harm. But I'll realize like, oh, I don't want to do that because that just makes things worse. Right? It's not skillful. So that capacity we have to refrain comes from that discernment of what's skillful and unskillful. And the same way of inspiring ourselves, oh, this it's possible to live with generosity. It's possible to refrain from being stingy. Right? So then we can it doesn't always have to be stopping ourselves from being unskillful. We can even inspire ourselves to be skillful because we know we've we have a deepening sense of what actually leads to happiness. So let's just take a moment, right? Because imagine how many cumulative years we've all lived if we added it all up. So there's maybe 70, 80 people here tonight. And let's say the average age is 40. Okay, do the math. 40 times 80. It's 32-something. <laughs> a lot of years, right? And so we've learned some things about what, like when I relate, in this way or that way, the aftertaste, what's left over in the heart, in the mind, feels right, feels good. Okay? So, now, I know we can just sort of guess at the end, oh yeah, when you're kind, you know, but think about actual experiences where you related what you think was skillfully, and as you recall it, you felt, the heart felt lighter more free, better, happier, you know, whatever word you want to use, after having related that way. So everyone think of a, because you don't know if I'm going to call on you. (laughs) I'm not going to call on anybody. But think of a time where you felt like you were pretty skillful, and then use your memory, your hindsight. Did the heart, did, like, did doing, relating that way that I, I think is pretty skillful, did it leave a positive impression in the heart, the mind stream? So who you were going forward, there was a little healing, a little posit- positive effect from having related that way. So anybody have one that would take you know a little bit of time and just just to sort of confirm what the Buddha taught is in fact true that we can get good at discerning what's skillful versus what's unskillful, because that's what I want to talk about tonight. And in particular, in terms of speech, yeah, please start us off. Carolyn, will you pass it back in the chair here? Thanks. Hi. 
My name is Cindy. I have a perfect example of this. I was at, I don't see anybody here that looks like that person. I was at Aldi's, and I went up to the counter to pay for my groceries. And I reached inside, and I realized I don't have my wallet. And I don't have that many groceries, but I was so embarrassed. And so the nice gentleman behind me says, well, how many items do you have? How much is this? And it was only like $15, right? So he pays for it for me. And I was so appreciative. I was like, well, I don't even know you. How do I pay you back? And he's like, well, I don't know. Don't worry about it. And I said, no, I, I, I'm so grateful. I don't, I don't know what to say. And so he reaches in and gives me a business card. I'm like, okay. So I get home. And now I'm thinking, how do I really pay this guy back? I, I'll probably never see him again. Do I really need to pay him back? <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, then, then that's where my mind was going. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. No, I cannot not pay him back. So, of course, he has his phone number on there. And so I text him and I just asked him, how, how do I pay you back? <laughs> I'm not going to drive to your house, you know, or write a check or I don't know. I didn't know how to do it. And he was so nice and said, don't worry about it. Just pay it forward. But the whole time I was thinking, should I, should I contact him? Should I not? Will it bother him if I contact him? Will he think I'm weird? I don't know. So I thought, I don't know what to do. So, but I get it. I get that feeling of, you know, I didn't have to, yeah. but I felt so wonderful that I did. Yeah. Yeah. Because part of, I'm guessing from how you described it, part of what left is leaving a good impression in your heart isn't is like learning how to receive that gift because that's actually a beautiful thing and it's a, this goes back to what i was saying about how you relate to kamagam because you might want to put some cash in the donation bowl because you have a yucky feeling that it wouldn't be right to to come to a program and not leave any money but that means you haven't practiced receiving the program as a free gift. Right? That's the first instruction. You have to really let it in as a free gift because all the people that made this place happen are offering it to us as a free gift. And all our teachers before us who passed these teachings down, right? so the first and most important thing is to receive it as a first gift. And that's a little bit what it sounded like you learned is uh, that's not so easy to just... And then, you know, if you pay it forward, like when that opportunity arises to kind of show up and take care of somebody in their moment of need, then, you know, you'll give that freely, partly because you learn to receive this guy's gift freely. Yeah, thanks so much. Cindy, is that your name? Yeah, thanks, Cindy, for sharing that. That was a great way to get started. How about a couple more examples of what seems to you acting in a skillful way and then something very healthy, healing, positive being left over from it. Just it can be quite simple. Don't doesn't have to be a dramatic story. Hi, my name is Adrian and um I have an elderly parent who is um sometimes she can be real cranky and mean and um uh, and I have uh the wisest thing I can do is to um, let her be herself and 
know that underneath all that yuckiness, there is, there is love. And that I used to fight with her. I used to say no, you know. I used to engage. And then I would feel terrible uh, afterwards. And now I am uh, accepting and remaining silent, but I'm also giving myself the gift of uh, a little more distance and not, you know, not seeing her as often, making sure that her needs are met, you know, in other ways. And just the release of, um, I don't have to engage, I don't have to fix her, I don't have to, you know, be there all the time because it doesn't feel uh, good, but that I can, I can do something. And I can also give to myself by taking that space and also being silent, learning that being silent is not uh, acquiescing. Yeah. It's, uh, it's being kind to her and to me. Yeah, thanks, Adrienne. That's beautiful to hear. Hard-learned lessons, those, especially with parents. So maybe time for one more example of, of again, some action, including words, speech, because that's what we've been talking about. Yeah, please. Can you pass the mic over? Take turns passing it. Hi, I'm Ren. Um, I don't know. Can you hear me? Was that good? It okay. has to be close. Okay. Um, so I at my workplace, um, there's a kind of a tendency for gossip. Um, and I was working with two people uh, as a receptionist, um, and there was downtime, um, and there was they were starting this like gossip circle almost. Um, and there was a moment that was actually pretty awkward in the moment um, where they expected me to like pitch in and add into the gossiping. Um, and we kind of just sat there in silence um, while I didn't respond to it. Uh, but looking back on it, there was that moment of healing because I didn't participate. Yeah. And that, boy, that's a powerful moment because, I mean, this is such such an important place I'm finding in my own life, and especially around these subtle areas of, of, um, you know, these racial moments that can come up for me as a white person and uh, how it's so easy, like, to get, like, the people have a way, when they're, they're speaking in a way that's a little off, whether it's gossiping or putting down a group of people or something like that. There's a way people unconsciously know they're you know, not being that skillful. And there's a way of trying to make everyone in the group complicit, right? Even if it's just like making you nod or you know, even if it's a false smile, but they're, they're sort of looking like, no, are you in or are you out? And and we what we want, I mean, from a place of fear, what we want is not to have to choose, because we have deep instincts, you know, and it's really genetic around belonging, all of us do, and are each of you know programmed in our own way with our own sort of cultural conditioning that we received growing up. So it's really hard to sort of find how to be skillful in those moments and to not sort of confirm whatever you know negativity that people might be involved in it, it's a real act of courage and it's really cool to notice the good feeling of not being sucked in which is probably for most of us 
the thing that often happens until we train. I, I think I mentioned, I don't know if it was Sunday night, a few weeks back, but uh, we're in the process of working with, there's a wonderful organization in town, ASDEC is the acronym, Anti-Racism, Anti-Racism um, Circle. Anybody know the uh, what it all stands for? Thanks. Yeah, with Okogemon, and now there's a number of other people who have been trained to lead this. And one of the trainings that they do, we've done a couple of their 10-week uh, trainings here at the center, but they also do a shorter thing called Slight of Mouth, where they basically train people for those sort of situations, you know, in particular around race. But the skill set works whatever the gossiping or the negativity uh, might be about. How to find that kind of ground to either, you know, not participate, being silent, or to speak up, you know, whatever might be an appropriate way to be authentic and real and skillful in, in those moments that we find ourselves in. So I want to go back to what I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. This, this is the Buddha talking about wise speech, where he says that uh, wise speech, what is wi wise speech? Abstaining from lying, slander, abuse, and gossip, or idle chatter. This is called wise speech. But I want to look at it in terms of the positive. So, you know, when we think of Line. So what does it mean, like the good feeling of respecting the truth, of aligning with the truth? Because if there are ways to be unskillful with the truth, you know, using the truth as a club, like I know the truth and I'm going to use it to make you wrong. I have seen myself doing this. I, I see it especially in my relationship with my spouse. You know, those kind of arguments you can have with your partner. And there are ways where it's like, oh, I'm so glad I'm right, because that means they're wrong. And uh, now I catch it more and more, but there it is. And it's, you know, obviously not skillful. So what is a skillful way for our heart, our mind, to align, to commit to speaking the truth? And I mentioned a couple weeks ago, you know, it's not just the truth, but it has to be spoken in a way that is actually useful for everyone involved at the right time. And so it has to be true, but also useful. Something that's true but not helping anybody isn't necessarily skillful. And, it, and then sometimes something's true and skillful, useful, but the person's not going to want to hear it. So then we have this added criteria, like we have to find the right way, the right time and place to say what's true and useful so that the discomfort that the other person, and it can be very painful, but that the, it will still be useful, right? That we really th were thoughtful about the time and place so it could be received. But we're not responsible for sometimes w the words we have to speak that are appropriate to speak are really painful. This is what the Buddha says. Herein, someone avoids false speech, abstains from it, speaks the truth, is devoted to truth, reliable, worthy of confidence, not a deceiver of people. Being at a meeting or amongst people 
or in the midst of relatives, or in society, or at the king's court, government building, and called upon and asked as witness to tell what one knows, one answers, one answers. If one knows nothing, I know nothing. If one knows, one answers, I know. If one has seen nothing, one answers, I've seen nothing. And if one has seen, one answers, I have seen. Thus one never knowingly lies or speaks a lie, either for the sake of one's own advantage or for the sake of another person's advantage or for the sake of any advantage whatsoever. So it would be good just now, you know, while we're thinking of this, to... Uh, to imagine like and, and to remember from our own lives where we've had that integrity of not lying, right? And just to contrast it where places where we maybe have leaked and have been spoken mistruths or shaded the truth <coughs> or left some, you know, part of the truth out. And how that when we're being not a little loose with the truth. It really creates a cage or a trap for the mind. You know, it, it's a heavy feeling. Because, I mean, one thing is we got to keep the delusion going or the lie, the deception going. We got to remember next time how we lied so that they don't catch us in our lie, right? When we, even when we shade it. I mean, I, again, I, I, I'm not done with my practice. And I'll, I'll notice this in people like if they've shaded the truth, you know, as to make themselves look better or to avoid my criticism or whatever reason they might have shaded the truth, then it's sort of like I, I have radar, right? And then it gets complicated because people like me want to call them on it. You know, they'll ask a street, I'll ask a strategic question. So what actually happened? You know, what was the deal with this? And then, you know, what is the habit? If we shaded the truth and someone asked a more specific question, then we usually double down. See, this is the trouble with just uh, not sticking with a very deep commitment to just speaking the truth, is that we can get in a place where we dig the hole deeper and deeper and deeper, and the more we justify, consciously justify lying, that's that whole cage, that trap we can get ourselves in. So think about place where a place where, for whatever reason, you've had a lot of integrity about speaking the truth. Could have been a particular relationship or a particular friend, particular teacher that you had or mentor, benefactor that you've had in your life, and you really like you didn't hold back or you just didn't want to contaminate the relationship with any mistruth. And like, what's that feeling in those places in our lives where there is that integrity of truth, speaking the truth? Like one thing is, when we, even when we remember the relationship, it's not complex as a memory. You know, it's like, not entangled with ooh, any of that moral doubt or shame, right? It feels really clean, those relationships. I remember, I forget what it was, but it was some conversation with another Dharma center, another Buddhist meditation center in town. 
And I had just spoken loosely about common ground, and and it didn't land right. I don't know if I had exaggerated. It felt after the fact that maybe I had exaggerated or hadn't painted exactly the right picture that was truthful. And it felt really good to call the person back and just clarify. Oh, you know, I don't, I don't, can't remember exactly what I said, but this is actually the way that it is. And, and, uh, and I think the person was really appreciative too that I cared enough about the relationship to clean up, you know, and to basically model that I really care about being truthful. I don't want to, you know. Like this relationship matters. It matters enough to be truthful. Any any reflections about that? Maybe take one or two, like where you've noticed this commitment to truth and how that felt good in a particular interaction or just generally in a particular relationship. Anything come to mind? Yeah. Pass it back. Hi, I'm Kathleen. Actually, I have a story similar to the one you just told, Mark. I was talking with a friend, and it was um, <clears throat> it was a topic related to politics. I think we were talking about the impeachment hearings or something. And um, I was surprised when she didn't agree with my viewpoint. <laughs> and I was like, how can you not agree with me? So I feel like I was very, very unskillful in that conversation. And then afterwards, I called her up, and I said, you know what? I'm sorry. I apologize. I know that you didn't exactly agree with me, but I honor your process and that we don't have to agree. I think we just get really invested in other people uh, agreeing with our viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah, it's existentially challenging because of the fixedness of our view. You know, that's that thinking we're right. And and uh, so much of what... Un- slowly, very gradually gets developed in this style of practice of of really um, valuing present moment awareness, that sense of being open is also the sense of not being fixed. It doesn't mean all of a sudden we can't have an opinion, but the mind learns that attaching to a particular point of view is really painful and stressful, and it really breaks up or causes problems in relationships. We can have an opinion, but we don't have to hold to it as the truth. This actually relates. I don't know if it was this Sunday night where I read something from Reb Anderson. He is actually from Minnesota, but he went on um, to be one of the early abbots of the San Francisco Zen Center and now is um, one of the senior Dharma teachers still out there at Green Gulch Farm, which is a beautiful Zen practice place north of San Francisco. Um, but... Uh, he tells a story or writes about this positive commitment to speaking the truth. Like there's no way to commit to the truth without understanding the limitations of our truth. And he gives the example of being you know, in a rowboat on the great ocean. And it's like, I might know my truth, you know, the immediate 50 feet around the rowboat, but I don't really know the o- whole ocean. To really get a sense of the totality of the ocean, my tr- truth needs to be integrated, including all of your truths in your rowboats. And that, that I think, gets to this point about uh, 
we can have our opinion from our particular perspective, but we, but to really know, like, the truth, we have to be willing to listen to everybody else's perspective. It doesn't make our perspective wrong. Listening to other people, it just, it's complex, right? And so that sort of um, willingness to know, to see, to have an opinion, but to hold it lightly so we can really hear everybody else. And boy, this is such a good time in politics because I think part of the problem is that a lot of the corporate media organizations really benefit from things being divisive and because uh, we click more and we read more. And so... There's this, um, and then politics also benefits. You know, people get elected by using fear and division. So we have to really be on our game in terms of our practice and non-fixedness of view. And it doesn't mean you can't be a progressive or can't be a conservative or can't have a point of view, a political point of view. It just means our views are infused with humility. We're still a learner. We're still listening. We're interested. And it doesn't keep us from being an activist. Actually, the other is exhausting. So if you really want to set emotion good in the world, having a fixed view, you know, people burn out all the time with fixed views. How about one more example of the positive end, like a commitment of speaking the truth and really feeling healed or light because of it. Yeah, you want to do, Robert? Right behind. Uh, how about Robert in the back? Hi, my name is Robert, and um, I have a great example uh, which reflects the way you presented this issue. I am in 12-step program, and some years back I had uh, to make an amends, and there are several steps in the 12-step program, 7th and 8th, I believe, where you study what it is you need to make amends about, and then the eighth step, if I'm not mistaken, is that you then make amends only when it doesn't hurt the person that you're making the amends to or someone else or myself. Mm. And I made a mistake. I ran into it, said, i got to make amends for this, and I actually ended up hurting the person. And I didn't know how to clean that up. And I thought, just getting into it again is just going to stir the pot, and I don't want to do that. Um, And so it's a situation that I had to leave unresolved, and I didn't like that either. But it's it's really the point you made about reflecting on how we do this, how we make amends, how do we we relate with each other, especially in uh, therapy or 12-step programs is extremely important. Yeah, and part of that, like getting to the place where we can even have a good sense of how to set emotion healing or how to make amends, we have to learn how to be comfortable with the yucky feeling of being the person who said that or did that. Because if, if I'm not comfortable with that feeling of remorse, then the reason I'm making amends is to get rid of this yucky feeling. So it's not really about healing or taking care of the other person it's like i don't want to feel bad so better forgive me you know which doesn't work 
but it's not so easy to be with. Like, to what does it feel like to be the person who made a mistake? That's a yucky feeling. Like when we have a real clear, honest sense, oh yeah, I did that, I said that, and it feels like this. But that's really a, a powerful healing, and then it makes it easier to figure out whether and how we might make amends. I appreciate you sharing that, Robert. Let's go on to the next one. So there's you know, this commitment to not lying, but we're looking at like how speaking the truth can be a really positive force in our life. So the other uh, injunction that the Buddha talks about is not slandering, not using our words as a weapon, like we hear so much in politics these days. So the positive would be like how your words, how our words were used for healing, like the opposite of slander. Here's what the Buddha says about that. One avoids slanderous speech and abstains from it. What one has heard here, one does not repeat there so as to cause dissension there. And what, what one has heard there, one does not repeat here as to cause dissension here. Thus one unites, so this would be the positive. Think about a place where you uni- unites those that are divided and those that are united one encourages. Concord gladdens one. One delights and rejoices in Concord, and it is in Concord that one spreads by one's words. Right? So like thinking about times through the use of words, right, where like just supporting some kind of reconciliation or healing. And uh, there's, uh, I don't know if anybody here has studied in the, tradition of nonviolent communication started by Marshall Rosenberg, I believe is his last name. I did a few of the trainings way back when it was big. But one of the great things about that training, it's just about conflict resolution, is first and foremost, understanding that as a human being, I have needs in this moment, in this relationship with another person or whatever group. And lo and behold, they also have needs. So first we have to get clear about our needs and our desire that they know that I have needs. And then, of course, I have to also realize they have needs and they want me to know, to be clear about what their needs are. And that's a really powerful understanding in terms of healing and reconciliation So think about a time in your lives where that clarity came up, where you you really realized, whether it's with your lover or with a child of yours, someone you're raising, or whatever it was at work, where you realized that both you had needs, they had needs, and somehow with words facilitated a conversation where you both got clear about, oh yeah, we're two people or we're a bunch of people with needs and we need to know what each of our needs are. And the funny thing is, even if things don't get resolved, there's just a lot of healing in realizing this. I mean, they, the people who've trained with Marshall Rosenberg, they even did work, obviously didn't do a lot of good, but within the whole Israeli-Palestinian conflict, 
But just to, you know, imagine those two sides, just because it's in the news, and for hopefully for most of us it's somewhat distant, but maybe some of you have closer connections to that, you know, terrible conflict. But to really understand the needs of the Palestinian people and to really be able to connect and understand the needs of the Israeli people. It just, because it's so easy to want to demonize one side or the other, but to see and sense that there are people with actual needs and a lot of ignorance, one side not recognizing the needs of the other, the other side not recognizing the needs of the other. So anybody have an example of this using words for this kind of reconciliation from your life that you'd like to share with the group. We have a little time before we end at 8.30. When have you had a conversation right, where somehow the words that happened really led to healing? Tim, you want to pass the mic over here, whoever has it? If you could take turns passing it. Good evening. My name is Tim. <clears throat> in my, uh, I was in my last clinical physical therapy school. I was working with in the uh, acute rehab with people with strokes and spinal cord injuries. And my instructor was a very powerful woman P- PT who uh, I really powerful mind. <laughs> she didn't. She wasn't like. A, practitioner of meditation i don't think but she was a really powerful person and i I really respected her but somehow that respect turned into like seeing her as the the big one and me as the little one but anyway i wanted to i was taking charge more with all the patients because it was my last clinical and she was she was kind of putting pressure on me to like defer to her more and but i was feeling more like i had more to offer and it was really building up in me, but one day I just kind of stopped and said, like, you know, I feel like I need more independence from you. And I, uh, I had like tears in my eyes when I was saying it because it was it was really intense. And you know, I got I got my needs across to her in that way, and then she told me like, this is well, this is my responsibility. This is you're working under my license. She said all her stuff, and this whole thing took like five minutes maybe but something really shifted after that even though like neither of us like got what we wanted you know (laughs) it was just like here's what i care about and then she says what she cares about and it seemed like a big release of energy that was uh it was really hard for me but because there's so much like related to like my self-view of like uh i don't know people talk about childhood stuff um yeah, just like it's not seeing myself like, in in, at her my needs as, as, uh, are important as her needs. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's a powerful example, Tim. So I'd encourage you to experiment, you know, at home, with this, like the power of reconciliation and really valuing. And the way that we do that is like where there's conflict, where there's confusion. Find a way to have a conversation where you feel safe expressing that I have needs and I want sh- I, I have this desire that you know that I have needs. I want to know that you know that I have needs. And 
I'm willing to hear your needs and I bet you also want me to really know that I've heard what your needs are. So that in that NVC, that nonviolent communication process, you would actually say back. So what I hear you saying is that you have the need for independence so that you're ready to get out there in the field and work, you know, on your own. And and somehow hearing the other person reflect back the needs that we told them we have is so reassuring. And it's it's funny how like I like Tim mentioned and I mentioned a lot of reconciliation happens even if nothing changes because now the relationship is based on this deeper understanding. I get it. You get it that I have needs. I get it that you have needs. We've met on that more honest level. So there are two other things that Buddha points out about wise speech, right? There's like refraining from harsh speech, which might be something like sarcasm and just even loud and loud voice, swearing. Now, the the question is, because a lot of this is just about culture, so what does that look like in terms of who you are and your cultural conditioning? What is it to use body language and tone and words that are soothing and uh, you know not about uh, like uh, the way I think about it is uh, when kids scream, you know, younger kids like three-year-olds, it's sort of they're finding power. Right, they're like figuring out how to use power. So how can like examples in our lives where we could have used words to sort of express our power, but it sort of felt more appropriate, more skillful for the words to be softer or more gentle or like not calling attention to ourselves. Not I don't know what that would be, but yeah, I don't know if this resonates with us about this level of wise speech and what actually we find enlivening and liberating about that. Uh, again, because there's shadows, I want to be a little bit careful because there's shadows to that sort of calm, gentle affect, right? But there can be real power in that too. You know, there's, we all know people who, who are quiet, but everyone listens when they talk. So what's that about? <laughs> you know, and we all know people that are loud and abrasive, and nobody really listens to what they're saying. And what's that about? And this goes to the, the last category, too, and we'll have to end because it's almost 8.30, but around idle speech. And like people who talk a lot, and I'm kind of in that category, I mean professionally, but I mean at home too, you know, just sort of. And, uh, and I notice it's like I've trained my wife over the years, you know, 27 years or whatever it's been, not to always listen to me, right? Because a lot of what I'm saying is what would be categorized in the Buddhist teachings as idle speech, not speech that's, it's not an improvement on silence, right? The words don't actually need to be spoken. So that's another thing to look at is that enlivening joy of 
using words in the right at the right time in the right way with the right tone but but it's like a scarce or a special commodity not to be wasted just thrown around because we got too much we drank too much coffee or something you know and we're just talking because we're filling up space sometimes it's literally we're not comfortable with the quiet so we're going to fill up the space with talking and to to learn how enlivening it, it is to respect words like it's there there's a certain power Words, so why would I waste it? Let me use it at the right time in the right way to be a cause for healing, a cause for something that's beneficial for myself or for others. Otherwise, I'm totally okay being quiet. So that way I'm not talking because I have to. I'm talking because it's healing for myself, beneficial for myself or others. But we need to leave it here. It's just now 8.30. Just take a few seconds so we can let go of the words and just have 30 seconds of silence. Enjoy the peace and quiet. And thanks everyone for coming out tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.